narrative of upward mobility um, that we often subscribe to, at least in the United States, um, work hard and you'll do well in school, do well in school and you'll go to college, go to college and, and the doors of opportunity will fling open. This narrative has been an article of faith for several generations of Americans and for families from disadvantaged backgrounds, it's supposed to dis uh, describe a particular path, a path that they hope their children will follow in order to have better lives than the ones that they have. Now, there has long been skepticism about upward mobility and whether it really is as common and as available as uh, this traditional narrative would have it be. Social scientists, and here we have Rush Chetty, who is the um, kind of the most prominent researcher currently doing this kind of work, have accumulated troves of data showing the ways in which, for example, and this is a chart about um, you know, the zip code into which you're born in the United States determines much more of your eventual life outcomes than many of the other factors that we often think matter, like um, how hard you work, how intelligent you are, and so on. So it turns out that the socioeconomic status, um, education of your parents, your race, again, your zip code, all of those play significant factors in determining where you will end up. Um, and um, as it turns out in the United States, and I'm sure that's very well known here, there's much less upward mobility than in other places like Canada. Um, despite the fact that we you know, often talk about the United States as the land of opportunity and upward mobility. Um, and uh, we're increasingly aware of how misleading it is to uphold upward mobility as a path available to everyone who wants to embark on it. Um, but there's another aspect of the myth of upward mobility that I'm going to discuss with you today. And that's the cost that the students who embark on it must bear if they're to tra dramatically transform their lives. So upward mobility is rare, but it does happen. Uh, here you see Sonia Sotomayor, Colin Powell, uh, proud CCNY grad, Howard Schultz, um, although you know, when, when I first made this PowerPoint, Howard Schultz wasn't running for president. So that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a whole other context than it had before. Um, so all over the country, all over the United States, kids growing up in this advantage work hard, they go to college, they transform their lives. Um, but I think that one aspect of that narrative, off, or sorry, of that path often gets obscured. The optimistic narrative of upward mobility often portrays the process of, as one of continual gains. So you get an education, career opportunities, knowledge, skills, and so on. But it is the losses that I think we often don't talk about. Um, okay, so for this book, um, you know, unlike other philosophy books, I actually conducted interviews uh, with people who had a, had the experience of upward mobility. So many of them were professionals um, and had dramatically transformed their life circumstances. And I conducted the interviews not as a social scientist, not, <laughs> um, but kind of I was interested in in um, thinking about some of the ethical aspects of the experience of upward mobility in a way that social scientists weren't. There were hints of what I was interested in in the social science literature, but they weren't really asking the questions in the way that you know a philosopher would be interested in. So um, Todd is one of the people I interviewed. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about his story. 
Todd grew up in a predominantly minority low-income neighborhood in Atlanta with his grandparents, his mom, and his sister. Um, and he disliked his neighborhood school because he was seized for studying and getting good grades. He recalls being ostracized, and these are his words, for trying to be white. But his grandparents' home in his neighborhood was also a, a center in the neighborhood, a source of community, and um, a lot of his extended family lived in the neighborhood, and everybody would hang out at his grandparents' home, in part because his grandparents, unlike other parents in the neighborhood, were still married and, and had fairly, fairly, um, a fairly stable home life. Um, and so a lot of his cousins and his friends would hang out in his home, and so they had a very rich social network at home. But after a teacher got stabbed in the school, his mother asked a friend of hers to let them use her address so that Todd could go to a better suburban magnet school um, in another part of Atlanta. As Todd pointed out to me with a hint of embarrassment, um, this was technically not above board, but you know, you know, he said his mother had to do what she had to do. This was her only way of finding a better learning environment for Todd. Now, once he moved to the suburban magnet school, his, his um, social network changed dramatically. Um, Todd, who is African-American, started hanging out with his friends from school, which were from a majority white neighborhood. His French parents were dentists and lawyers and doctors. Um, the assumption among his school's peers was that they were all going to college. This was not the assumption among the kids that he grew up with um, and that he had gone to school in his neighborhood school. Um, Todd, with little guidance from his family, who knew little about the college application process, found a way to become the first in his family to go to college. And after a few years working in the government, um, when I met him, was pursuing a master's degree at an Ivy League university. So Todd had really dramatically changed his life circumstances from um, that of his mom, who was in and out of work and hadn't um, received a college education. I think she might not have even finished high school, um, and his grandparents. And um, what I'm going to try and convince you of today are three central claims. Um, so the first is that in order to gain educational and career opportunities that will propel them into the middle class, strivers, which is the, what I call um, people from disadvantaged backgrounds that are trying to make it through education, often have to make sacrifices in many areas of their lives they find valuable, relationships with family and friends, their connections to their communities, and their sense of identity. And these are what I will call the ethical costs. The second claim I'll try to convince you of is that these ethical costs are disproportionately borne by students from disadvantaged communities. And I'm gonna situate that in unjust socio, um, economic, social, and cultural factors that are beyond their control. And this is the part of the talk where I'll talk a bit about the social science um, on first-generation college students and low-income college students. Um, and the third part um, is the claim I make that we need to empower students with a different narrative of upward mobility, what I call the cleared-eyed ethical narrative that acknowledges these costs situates them in a broader context and helps students to think clearly about the ethical trade-offs. Okay, so let's go back to Todd's story. Um, because I think once we start to unpeel the layers of Todd's story is where we really see uh, some of the, cl uh, the claims that I will be making kind of uh, come out. 
So when Todd got to college, he felt pretty well prepared academically because he had gone to the suburban magnet school. Um, but there was a culture shock element um, that he experienced. So some of the social difficulty had to do with being unable to participate in many of the social activities that the other college students were engaging in because those were very expensive for him. Um, but beyond the financial constraints he faced, he described the cultural disconnect, and I quote him here, as a feeling of still being other. I'm gonna quote what Todd had to say. I felt okay walking around campus. I could blend in a little. But once I said something or did something to break that illusion, I felt like it would all fall apart. And those feelings continued in Todd's prestigious internship and later government job. He told me, and I quote, I didn't really get close to anyone. I didn't really make any friends. I think partially because we came from different backgrounds. It was hard for me. I didn't really understand a lot of the things they would talk about, cultural things. So on the one hand, Todd is finding it hard to enter, to, to make connections, find a community in college, and then in his government job. But on the other, his contact with his family, his relationship there starts to deteriorate as well. So at first, while he was in college, he would visit home often, and then as he moved further away, he, and I quote him again, completely cut off from them because I just wasn't running in the same circles as they were and not doing the same things that they were. The additional expense of driving home became a factor when Todd moved to the East Coast, and another, as he told me was, and I quote, that a lot of my relationship with them had become very monetized in a way. Whenever they called, it was always about money. So Todd had started sending his family money as soon as he started working, um, but his sister was in a lot of financial difficulty and she thought it was never enough. Now, as he explained to me, at some point he moved to DC to work for the government and living in the sea is expensive, but from his family's perspective, the amount of money he was making seemed like a lot of money and he was you know, not sharing with them and they were in a really bad financial situation. So this became a big source of strain and he started calling home less and less because he found it really hard to have these phone conversations with his family. But these decisions were not easy for Todd. So when I asked him to reflect on what he would tell his younger self, he expressed some regret about the trade-offs he had made. He told me, and I quote, it was almost like I was given the choice to sacrifice relationships for being able to survive college. I would tell my past self to try to find ways not to do that, try to find ways to make it, not make it such a trade-off. Maybe find ways to make it more involved, like you can still have your family there and you can still reach out to them and be with them and not have this fear falling back into their ways. All right. So in the book, um, I frame the costs that students like Todd face as uh, ethical costs. And what I have in mind here are um, the the idea of ethical goods that I use are just those aspects of our lives that we value and they give it meaning. Um, so what we might think of as contributing to flourishing if you have a certain kind of ethical view. For strivers, the ethical goods at stake are often relationships with family and friends, their connection to their community and their sense of identity. In the book, I take this uh, ethical goods view uh, as given in part because Part of my goal with writing this book is talking to people working in higher education, not of all who are, you know, many of them are not philosophers and are not interested in having a conversation about the deep metaphysical nature of ethical goods, but that's a notion I work with. Um, so in Todd's case, we see, for example, that what's at stake is 
his relationship with his family and his extended family, his relationships with his community, which he was pretty close to when he um, was growing up, and his sense of cultural and ethnic identity. So Todd talked to me a lot about um, uh, just dealing with the idea of being an African-American man from a particular neighborhood. And, and as he was going through his career path, kind of negotiating that identity. Now what has been traded for are these educational and career opportunities that he got by going to school far from his family, going to college even further, and then going um, and getting a job in the federal government. Um, so his life was increasingly distant from, from them. Um, so I think that the traditional um, narrative often obscures these trade-offs the students have to make. Um, and um, I, I argue in the book that these ethical costs cannot be accounted for in the same way that financial, um, financial investments, time, and other kinds of ways that we have of talking about the cost of higher education can. So why? Now, I think that part of it is because um, the nature of these costs are often um, particular and not easily replaced. So if you look at a, a bunch of the literature and philosophy on uh, love and relationships, you know, part of what you uh, discover there is that um, to love someone, to care for someone, is to care for them in particular. So, you know, this is a fanciful philosopher's example, but if somebody came into my house overnight and swapped my husband with an equally funny, equally handsome architect, um, and I woke up and there was a different man next to me, I wouldn't say, oh, you know, he like has all of the same qualities. <laughs> I'm just gonna go on as before. Um, part of what it is to love a, a person is to love them in particular, to see them as not easily replaced. And so I think that a lot of the costs that are involved for strivers um, in the process of upward mobility are these kinds of relationships that are very meaningful, especially to young people who are kind of starting out and the, the relationships that they're starting out with are the ones that they have to family, extended family, uh, friends, and so on. And so I think that their loss is, is actually very keenly felt and it's not, it's not something that we can easily think as being made up by or replaced by what they gain in the path of upward mobility. So take, for example, in the uh, traditional conversation about the cost of higher education, there's a lot of talk of student debt. Now, student debt is very stressful for students, obviously. And it's a cost that they have to be upfront, plus all their interest they have to pay. But the thought is that eventually you make that up, right? Eventually, over your life earnings, you're much more likely to get a job and to make more money if you get a college degree. So that debt is going to be um, paid off in some way. Um, by everything that you gain. Um, but I think the kind of costs that I'm talking about, the ethical costs, are not easily thought of as being replaced in that way or made up in that way. Now, it's important when we're talking about this not to have a conversation in which we think about these costs as appearing in a very abstract way to the students. Like, I have to choose my education over my family. That's rarely how things go. So I think 
Very few people choose family over school or community over career opportunities. What actually seems to happen, and I see this with my students, is that people see these conflicts appear in very mundane day-to-day -day situations. So um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my students to kind of give, give you the flavor of this, because uh, actually my students, many of them, are strivers. So, um, CUNY students are, 42% um, of them are the first in their family to go to college. Um, about 38.5% of them come from families that make less than $20,000 a year. And about 78% of them, 78.2% of them are students of color. And so I see this conflict in my students, and this is actually what led me to the research that um, made up this book, which is that I see that my students are often having to choose between, say, going to class or helping babysit at home, uh, or taking care of a sick relative instead of studying for an exam, or going to college close to home to be able to help their family financially instead of going to college far away. Um, and in those choices that students make, they really are very kind of, they're not thinking abstractly, what am I choosing, my family over my education. They're thinking like, today I have a test, but my cousin needs someone to babysit her kid. What do I do, right? And it's in the repeated choices that students make over and over again in these kinds of situations that they either potentially put some of those relationships at risk and then uh, flourish in school, hopefully, or what I see with my students happen often enough is that they end up choosing to be there for their families or their friends or their community and end up not um, doing what they need to do to graduate um, and failing out of college, which is, um, I think, the, the worst outcome that could happen. Um, uh, so now I'm going to turn to uh, talking about why I think that these kind of costs are borne by students from disadvantaged families in particular. Because there is a kind of challenge that you might bring up in this context, which is, you know, don't all college students make ethical trade-offs? We all make ethical trade-offs every day. I'm here and not hanging out with my daughter. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. <laughs> but we all make these kind of trade-offs every day. So what is it about being born into the circumstances that someone like Todd was born into that makes that case different, that makes the ethical cost of corporate mobility in particular different from just like the human condition that we're all limited in how much time and resources and attention we can spend on the various things that we value. And I think to see the difference, we need to understand how these costs are embedded in larger social, political, and cultural factors, which is why I think that looking at the social science really matters, because it helps us understand the ways in which what seem from the first person often like just ethical um, quandaries or ethical conflicts are actually embedded in these larger social structures. So I'm going to talk about three as an example, but I, but I think that there are a lot more um, factors that we could talk about in this context. Okay, so um, as I'm sure a lot of you know, at least in the United States, there's um, a lot of socioeconomic and racial segregation in terms of where people live, where people go to school, 
increasingly who people marry, um, who their friends are. Um, but here I'm just looking at schools. So in predominantly minority schools, uh, well, most school students of colors, sorry, in predominantly minority schools, which most students of colors attend, schools are large. So on average, more than twice as, as in predominantly white schools. Um, I'm skipping a little bit over here. On average, class sizes are 15% larger. Curriculum offers the materials are lower in quality. And teachers are much less qualified in terms of levels of education, certification, and training in the field they teach. So that's Linda Darling-Hammond, um, who is one of the researchers at the Stanford Center for Education Policy Analysis, who has been doing a lot of the work on this, just looking at the um, ways in which socioeconomic segregation impacts schooling. The most and least socioeconomically advantaged districts have average performance levels more than four grade levels apart. Just huge, <laughs> if you think about it. Um, so now think about to Todd, Todd, right? Todd's, when Todd's mother was thinking of moving him to a better school, we know that in the United States there is increasing segregation along class and racial lines. So if you're a low-income kid, you're very likely black and you're very, or Latino, and you're very likely to go to school with other low-income minority students. These schools, these schools tend to be worse. So if you wanted your kid to go to a quote-unquote good school nearby, or with kids whose families you know, that's actually not an option for you. You, you choose one of the two, right? If you can get your kid into a good school, it's probably not your neighborhood school, or you send your kid to your neighborhood school uh, with the people you know and who are part of your community, but it's not gonna probably be a good school. That is an option for many middle-class or upper-middle-class families in the suburbs. So Todd's distancing from his neighborhood friends and cousins is partially a result of these factors operating in the background. And the school that Todd initially went to was one that his grandparents had gone to, his parents had gone to, all of his cousins went to, his sister went to. So it was a school that was deeply embedded in his community and that his family had attended for a long time. But it wasn't a good school and that's why his mother um, decided to send him to a school further away. But that already started this process of distancing for Todd, distancing from his family and his community. All right. Um, so, you know, again, this is probably an example that shows the differences between the United States and Canada. But as you all know, the safety net in the United States is um, inadequate for many people in terms of the availability of healthcare and um, financial support, disability support, all sorts of stuff. So. Um, one of the books that has come out recently about higher education that really paints a devastating portrait, I think, is uh, Sarah Goldberg Robb's book, Paying the Price. And what she, that's a study of basically how college students um, and all of the college students she looked at were in the University of Wisconsin Madison or University of Wisconsin system. Some at flagship schools like Madison, some at community colleges. Um, and what she looks at is how kids are, are trying to pay for college and how well, or as actually not very well, the financial aid system works for them. And one of the examples that um, she talks about or one of the cases is this young woman, Nima. I'm just gonna read from the Ulrich Bart book. Nima went to college in order to escape this sort of work. 
her her parents um, did very uh, labor-intensive manual uh, uh, working class work. Her father was disabled, and Nina wanted to earn a college degree in order to help her family have a better life. But the family could not survive losing Nina's wages as she pursued school, and so she worked and felt pressured to work in positions that left her too tired for school. She was facing impossible choices. Um, and, and you see this happen throughout the book, that students are, are, are playing this role in which they're really supporting their families in a variety of ways, but that really puts a lot of pressure on, on them, I mean, obviously psychologically and emotionally, but it makes it really hard for them to uh, do what it is they need to do to succeed in school. And I think we see this again in Todd's story, the ways in which the inadequate safety net can aggravate these ethical conflicts. So Todd's sister was in a difficult financial situation and had um, inadequate support to help her through it. So she turns to her brother for help because that he is the only person that she can feel she can turn to, um, to for help. Um, but this leads to a souring of their relationship. And you might think, well, maybe that's a one-off case, but many families, and you see that in the Bull River book, end up turning to their college-age kids for childcare or elder care or financial and emotional support because they really do not have very many better alternatives. So the fact that there is an inadequate safety net ends up affecting those college-age students born into poverty in ways that it doesn't affect their middle or upper middle class counterparts. And so that's another way in which we see that the ethical conflicts are embedded in these um, larger social structures. Okay, uh, cultural mismatch. This is actually the social science research that really got me started thinking a lot about higher education. Um, and so this is gonna uh, require you to do a little work. Um, so this is from a survey that Nicole Stevens, a psychologist at Northwestern, gives uh, administrators and faculty and students. So if you look at the top, it says, there are many reasons why people choose to go to college. Please read the following list and place an X before each item that is a very important reason for you in attending college. And so you see, help my family out after I'm done with college, explore new interests, expand my knowledge of the world, expand my understanding of the world, provide a better for my children and so on. So you can kind of go through the list and think about what you would say. Okay, so what Stevens finds is that many college administrators, faculty, and the children of uh, parents went to college, so what they call continuing generation college students, um, choose the independent native on the list. So expand my knowledge of the world, become an independent thinker, and so on. And many first-generation college students um, choose the interdependent items on that list. Um, so help my family out after I'm in college, be a role model for people in my community, and so on. And she argues that this shows that there is this cultural mismatch between the cultural framework that many first-generation college students bring to um, the college campus and the cultural framework that they encounter, um, which is enacted by faculty and administrators and the other students who are not first-generation college students. She suggests that this cultural mismatch makes it more difficult for first-generation college students to navigate and succeed in some college campuses, 
And um, interestingly, she's done a series of interventions to try to address this. And um, some of the interventions do seem to close the GPA gap between first-generation college students and continuing college students. Now, some of this stuff is I would like to see replicated because it's almost too good to believe. So one of the things that she um, and her colleagues have done is just change the pamphlet that you get when you arrive at college. You know, when you're like, welcome to University of Toronto or something, you'll get a pamphlet in the mail telling you all about the university. She looked at those pamphlets, and I think she did this at Stanford, and the, um, a lot of it is coded in this independent language. And so what they did was they sent a group of first-generation college students a rewritten package that was written with more of the interdependent items and a group, a package that was the standard, more independent-oriented package. And there was a GPA difference after the first year between the group who had gotten the interdependent welcome package and the group who have got the independent. So the independent students, um, had a lower GPA than the uh, continuing generation students, which is a, a robust finding, but is um, seen all over the place. But apparently the ones that had received this package um, did better than other first generation college students who had received this package. It's a little astounding than like, the package you get when you're supposed to welcome to the University of Toronto or whatever would uh, have such a big effect. So that's why I say, let's take it with a grain of salt. Um, some of the other interventions that she has done um, are having people talk about the challenges that they face their first year of college, older students, to the first year student. And in one group, the older students will talk about the challenges they face but won't mention their backgrounds. And in another group, the um, older students will talk about the challenges they face but will say, and I'm a first-generation college student, and that's why I didn't go to office hours. Or, you know, I had trouble with a financial aid form because my mother is working class and doesn't know how to deal with these forms. Or whatever, that they'll bring their background up. And the students who were exposed to the, um, the session with people bringing up their background, um, you saw these effects in their GPA getting erased on the students who were exposed to the more standard. So, Again, all of this research is pretty new, but it, it's pretty interesting. And um, it suggests that there is this cultural mismatch. And, and I saw this a lot, actually, in the interviews that people were very um, forthright about the fact that they felt like there was a, they, that they weren't as savvy with the norms that dominated the college campus as some of the students that they felt were coming from more privileged backgrounds. Um, so, oh yeah, I actually just saw this. So she argues first-generation college students often have an interdependent cultural model, um, and that this makes it more difficult for them to navigate and succeed in some college campuses. Okay, this book actually just came out, um, and it, it's by Anthony Jack, who's a sociologist at Harvard. And I mean, what he did that was pretty, I, I mean, I just think, incredibly smart and clever is that it's really hard to disentangle the elements of this discussion of culture that have to do with um, income and parental background and those that have to do with culture because all of these things tend to go together. 
Um, and so what he did, and maybe some of you have read his stuff in, about it in the New York Times, is that he um, came up with this idea, and in part because of his own experience, of the privileged poor versus the doubly disadvantaged. So what's the difference here? Privileged poor are low-income blacks, black, and I think that he expanded the study to Latinos, low-income black and Latino students who end up going to private, uh, wealthy high schools through a scholarship program. So in the United States, private high schools have often a scholarship program targeted to like create a more diverse class, and they will target you know low-income students. And so he looks at the experiences of those students versus low-income black students that went to a regular public school in their neighborhood. Um, and so the nice thing about it is that parental background, economic background, a lot of these factors are similar. It's the educational experience that the students have had that is different, and one of them has had an experience with many more privileged peers, and the others are likely to have had an experience going to public school with other people like them. And what he finds is that there is this, um, uh, so here, that the privileged poor, despite having similar socioeconomic backgrounds to doubly disadvantaged, find college a much easier place to navigate. Um, and what he argues is that basically the privileged poor have been acculturated into the upper middle class culture that dominates college campuses. And I should say that he's looking at uh, liberal, like very selective liberal arts uh, colleges in the United States. Um, but what he finds is that these students will say things like, I forget that I'm poor. Like, you look at the, it's ethnographic research, so if you look at some of the things that the students say, it's pretty amazing because they've had this experience of being around other very privileged students in high school and have basically kind of adapted to that social environment. So when they get to college, they don't feel like it's a very weird, different place. They think, oh yeah, I've been prepared for this. So they're the students who are, so some of the things that he finds that are more relevant to academic achievement, they're much more comfortable going to talk to professors during office hours, um, developing relationships with professors. They, they think of that as a, as a thing to do and something that you should do while you're in college, where a, lo a lot of the doubly disadvantaged students um, come to college and, and think that that's a very weird thing to do, to try to talk to your professor if you don't have, you know, you're not having problems in the class. Um, they find it easier to socialize and make friends um, and to navigate many aspects of the student uh, culture than uh, the doubly disadvantaged students. Um, so, for example, Todd, who we talked about, had already been somewhat acculturated into this culture in his magnet school, although he still felt, according to what he told me, a culture shock getting to college. Um, some of it for him had to do with uh, race, and I, I, that's an aspect of the book that I don't, uh, that's an aspect of this experience, the, the issue of race that I don't fully deal with in the book, though I'm happy to talk about it in discussion. Um, but, but some of it, I think, had to do with the fact that he had gone to a school that was a suburban magnet school, but it wasn't like the students that Jack looks at have gone to Broughton or, you know, just very, very fancy uh, private schools. All right. 
So um, I think that this uh, shows us that there is also this cultural dimension and that students can actually internalize some of the culture um, that they encounter in these private lead high schools and, in the, and on the college campus. Um, although there is some sociological debate about to what extent um, college students end up internalizing the independent cultural model. Um, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that in the session. Um, so I think what we need to understand is that these ethical costs are not borne equally by all students or by all families or all communities. For some parents, seeing their child succeed in the path of open mobility requires that they be willing to see their child grow more and more, more and more distance from them and their community. And this is not true of all parents. I think that's one way of trying to see what's the difference between the ethical costs of, of someone like Todd um, versus just the ethical dilemmas that we all face when we're going to college and we're, I don't know, maybe you know you're reading. Mill, and then you decide to question something your parents told you, and then your parents get mad at you. That's a certain kind of um, cost, and, and, and but but I think it's importantly different from what we're talking about here. Although I'm sure a lot of people will press me on that in the Q and A. All right. Um, so the final uh, part of the book, um, I talk about the importance of changing the narrative around uh, upward mobility. And this is because I do actually think that the narratives that we tell ourselves matter. Narratives help us articulate uh, what we find valuable, what we have done, and what we're doing. And something that I found in talking to many of the people who have gone through this process of upward mobility is that they tend to kind of in, they tend to internalize some of the choices they made as, you know, I'm a bad brother or a bad son or a bad sister because I chose to not be there for my mother or my sister or whoever, and instead choose my education or choose my career. Um, and so I think changing the narrative is a way of changing how uh, strivers see those sorts of ethical challenges. Um, and so I'm gonna talk a little bit about one way of thinking about an alternative <laughs> narrative. So I think that there is a kind of narrative that many immigrants have that um, is actually quite useful. So I'm a first-generation college student. Um, I'm also an immigrant. Um, so when I started teaching at City College, actually one of the things that I noticed was that I had a narrative around my experience of difference and the challenges I confronted that my students didn't have. Um, and that I thought some elements of that would have been helpful for them to have. So my family could not offer me any guidance about how to transition to college, um, but they had prepared me for being an immigrant. So everybody in my immediate family immigrated for economic opportunities. Um, my great-grandfather is from a canyon in the depths of the Andes. Uh, we don't even know what the town is called. We just know that when he was 12, he walked to Arequipa, which is uh, one of the second biggest cities in Peru, um, which is where my grandmother was born. And my grandmother um, immigrated to Lima, the capital, where I was born. And my mother now lives in Europe. She was an immigrant, too. Um, so I was taught from very early on that to achieve opportunities for upward mobility, I, too, would have to move far away. <laughs> um, and I grew up in, uh, in Peru in the 80s when um, 
we had a lot of terrorism and a lot of like financial insecurity and so uh, for very little my parents were like you have to leave this country so make something of your life um, and I knew that I would have to leave behind much of what I found valuable my culture my community uh, my family and that the sacrifice would be difficult and that what I left behind was meaningful and valuable um, I also learned that the lack of opportunities in my home country were driven by unjust conditions that ne negatively affected my life prospects. Um, and so I think that we can see in these features um, of that kind of narrative what I think should be the features of the new and eth ethical narrative that we offer students. So I think the first part is acknowledgement of the value of the goods that are left behind. Um, and actually, a lot of the discourse that you that you see around this idea of going somewhere else for better opportunity um, involves, to some extent, disparaging what is left behind. Um, so I was surprised sometimes at the way that um, some of the people I interviewed talked about um, wanting to get out of there, which made sense in one respect, right? It's, if you live in a very impoverished community, you know, uh, the idea of going somewhere else to find opportunity involves seeing the problems and what's not great about the place where you live. But there was also a lot of value in those communities that uh, many of the people I interviewed talked about. Um, so I think acknowledging the value of what is left behind um, is important. Um, the second aspect is recognizing that ethical trade-offs are central to the experience. Um, so I see this with my students sometimes where they, they think that they can do it all, that they're going to be able to go to class and you know get that college degree and babysit for their cousin and have a full-time job. And that rarely actually works. I think this idea that you're going to be able to just accumulate everything and satisfy, not have to make any trade-offs, is um, can be potentially damaging to students who buy into that narrative. Um, and crucially, I think it's important to understand the historical and structural factors that impact the experience of mobility. And you know, we saw that with the three factors that I talked about. Um, and finally, I haven't talked about that here, but I talked about it a fair bit in the book, appreciating one's own agency and resisting or contributing to some of the factors that lead to um, the ethical costs that uh, strivers face. So I argue that educators and educational institutions should give students the tools to construct these clear ethical narratives for themselves. But in doing so, there is a risk. So some students might decide that the sacrifice is too great for them to make. I have, you know, I'm a philosopher, so I have no uh, empirical claim to say offering students these narratives will actually make it more likely for them to graduate or to. Uh, achieve some educational outcomes. I just think it's true, and that's why we should <laughs> tell students the truth. Um, so it might be that some students you know, look at, a situ at, at the situation in a new light and decide, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to potentially uh, endanger my relationship with my family or my community. In fact, and this is very speculative, I think that many students are actually already doing that. Um, so I was recently doing, I, as an undergraduate, went to Princeton, and I was recently doing alumni interviews for Princeton. Um, 
And the reason I like doing these is because I, I live in Queens, so I do them in my, in my borough in New York. And most of the students I interview are first-generation um, immigrants. That's most of the students I interview. And many of them, their first criteria for going to college is staying close to home. So they're applying to Princeton, not because it's like fancy Ivy League school, although that's part of it, but they're applying to Princeton because it's close to home. Um, so I, I, I do, and you know, they're applying to CUNY and SUNY and all the schools nearby, but um, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of students, though they might not articulate it in the way I have, are already thinking about the path of upward mobility in this way, and they're saying, you know what, I'd rather not distance myself from my family. I'd rather not distance myself from my community in order to achieve upward mobility. So I don't think hope should be the enemy of truth. I think we have an obligation to be honest with students about the real cost they will have to bear, even if they, you know, we think they're ultimately worth making and that that's what they should do. I think we should give students that choice. Um, so just to conclude, I've argued that upward mobility often requires that one make sacrifices and may or in need areas of one's life that one finds valuable, relationships with family, friends, neighbors, and connections to one's community. These sacrifices are disproportionately borne by those who are born into positions of disadvantage and uh, residential segregation, the lack of a safety net, cultural mismatch are all factors um, that contribute uh, to the ethical costs that students bear. And I've suggested that we need to guide students to articulate for themselves what these costs will be for them, how they're connected to the social and economic context to which they're born and to understand that they also have agency to change those conditions. Um, before I close, let me say one final reason that I think thinking about this aspect of upward mobility is important. Often, upward mobility is, as, is portrayed as the solution to poverty and disadvantage. Um, in the United States, a lot of the rhetoric around education is getting students to college. Um, like That's the goal. Um, but if we think about the ethical costs, we should also note that the ethical costs are not just borne by students. They are also costs for those who stay behind. So families and neighbors lose something when the relationships they have with the talented members of their community are weakened or lost. And when finding better opportunities puts pressure on members of a community to distance themselves from others in that community, I think communities are made more fragile. They're constantly at risk of losing their talented and motivated members. There are exceptions, of course. So students, one path uh, by which students go back is students who go back to teach. Some students go back and start a business or to live in the community in which they grow up. But for extremely impoverished communities, that's often a very difficult choice for students to make. Most of the incentives are aligned so that leaving your community is the way to a middle class life for yourself and for your own children. Um, so socioeconomic segregation means that if one wants better opportunities for one's kids, then there is pressure on one to live in a neighborhood that affords such opportunities, and that's likely not to be the neighborhood in which you grow up if you grew up in a fairly impoverished neighborhood. So I think in the United States, severe socioeconomic segregation and inequality um, and in, in fact, lead to upward mobility being a threat to communities that are already weakened 
and suffer the ill effects of um, these unjust um, policies. So that's one reason I think it's important that we talk about these costs, because I think it puts into perspective that communities and families and there are other people on the other end who are also um, suffering from the uh, way that we set up the incentive structure um, around higher education. Thank you. And I just thank all those people who gave me money. <laughs> <laughs>